Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. While you're listening, you can put faces to the names, watch clips from the archives, and peruse the 1950s and 60s queer publications on Instagram at Queer Serial. This podcast has text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. And if the word integration means anything, this is what it means. That we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven from it. 
You know, and I know, that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom 100 years too soon. James Baldwin, my dungeon shook the fire next time. Nineteen fifty five. They've been waiting for a test case. Fourteen year old Emmett Till was murdered at the hands of two white men who were acquitted even though they admitted guilt. Fifteen year old Claudette Colvin was arrested in Alabama after she refused to give up her bus seat for a white man. Colvin was reportedly a pregnant teenager and unmarried, not the ideal candidate for a movement because, of course, the white press would have used that information to smear her image. People working in the movement for racial justice were angered that young Emmett Till's case received such a high level of attention and still his killers walked free. The Montgomery NAACP is ready to test the system like Claudette Colvin did. They're ready for a test case. And suddenly... Their secretary found herself right at the center of one. Rosa Parks steps onto her bus. She's a seamstress and secretary for the Montgomery NAACP chapter. When she joined, she was the only woman in the chapter, and so she filled the role of secretary. She has a history of activist work over the past decade or so, and has just finished a course in race relations in which she learned about nonviolent civil disobedience. She's getting onto a bus driven by a man who, 12 years ago, had her pay, get off the bus to reboard at the back door, only to abandon her on the side of the road in the rain. Now, as the bus fills with white passengers, he tells four people of color to move to the back. Parks realizes this is her opportunity. There is this myth that Parks was just too tired to get up. She'll later clarify. She was tired of giving in. She's thinking of Emmett Till when the bus driver tells her to stand up, and she says, I don't think I should have to stand up. He says he'll call the police, and she says, you may do that. Holding down people of color is all procedure for the white people involved, systemic racism. And that is again proven when Parks asks the arresting officer, why do you push us around? And he says, I don't know, but the law is the law and you're under arrest. By simply sitting and resisting the system's rule, Rosa Parks will change the rule. This method of activism has been carefully studied and taught and will now bring new tactics to the movement. E.D. Nixon sees Rosa Parks as the test case they've been waiting for. He's the local NAACP president and member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a labor organization for African Americans. He says Parks is the perfect arrest, employed, married, willing to test segregation laws, quote-unquote, above reproach, and most importantly, she's someone who will anger the community into action. After her arrest and before her trial, E.D. Nixon organizes a meeting of ministers at Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. They name their group the Montgomery Improvement Association and choose their leader, Dr. King. On the night of Rose's arrest, the Women's Political Council passes out flyers throughout Montgomery. Another woman has been arrested and thrown in jail because she refused to get up out of her seat on the bus for a white person to sit down. It is the second time since the Claudette Colvin case that a Negro woman has been arrested for the same thing. This has to be stopped. Negroes have rights too, for if Negroes did not ride the buses, they could not operate. Three-fourths of the riders are Negro, yet we are arrested or have to stand over empty seats. If we do not do something to stop these arrests, they will continue. 
The next time it may be you or your daughter or mother. This woman's case will come up on Monday. We are therefore asking every Negro to stay off the buses Monday in protest of the arrest and trial. Don't ride the buses to work, to town, to school, or anywhere on Monday. You can afford to stay out of school for one day if you have no other way to go except by bus. You can also afford to stay out of town for one day. If you work, take a cab or walk. But please, children and grown-ups, do not ride the bus at all on Monday. Please stay off all buses on Monday. The next morning, Dr. King hosts a meeting at the church to strategize the boycott. Rosa Parks enters to a standing ovation. A peaceful protest is planned, and come Sunday, ministers at black churches announce the boycott for Monday. The bus boycott on December 5th, 1955, is massively successful. A meeting follows at the Holt Street Baptist Church, where Dr. King gives an impromptu speech, asking if the boycott should continue. Everyone supports him. Carpools are formed, black cab drivers charge bus fare prices for black passengers, many people walk, bike, or hitchhike to work, and the city immediately feels an economic punch. Within two days, FBI Director Hoover orders his agents to investigate Dr. King and seek derogatory information. Four black Baptist churches and Dr. King's house are firebombed. Hundreds of angry people gather outside Dr. King's house. If you have weapons, take them home. If you do not have them, please do not seek to get them. We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. Remember the words of Jesus. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. We must love our white brothers, no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop because God is with the movement. Go home with this glowing faith and this radiant assurance. As the boycott gains momentum, Dr. King and 88 leaders, including carpool drivers, are indicted for conspiring to interfere with a business, the city transit system. They turn themselves in. The story makes national headlines and brings the boycott widespread attention as Dr. King serves two weeks in jail. I was proud of my crime. It was the crime of joining my people in a nonviolent protest against injustice. His strategy, one Rosa Parks practiced perfectly on the bus, it isn't just instinct for them both. It was taught. Rosa Parks learned nonviolent civil disobedience in her social justice training classes. Dr. King learned it from Bayard Rustin. Previously, 
not a coincidence that these organizations are all quietly, simultaneously having the same realization. Word is spreading across the country of another woman fighting for her rights, refusing to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Many of the daughters hear a similar call. I'm glad as heck that you exist. Dell and Phyllis receive a discreet message from LHN. As one raised in a cultural experience, I am a Negro, where those within were and are forever lecturing to their fellows about how to appear acceptable to the dominant social group. Lorraine Hansberry currently lives in Greenwich Village. Her play, A Raisin in the Sun, will soon be the first play written by a woman of color produced on Broadway. One is oppressed or discriminated against because one is different, not wrong or bad somehow. Gushing to the Belitis founders that she wishes she could do more publicly for them and the latter, Hansberry says, Thus, I feel the latter is a fine elementary step in a rewarding direction. LHN, New York, New York. Many women must choose which cause to fight for. The civil rights movement for people of color is not so welcoming to homosexuals, and vice versa. Very few people are successful at fighting for both. It's only petty maliciousness that is trying to cause me heartache and harm. If they would devote the same amount of energy to local problems that are hurting the community, it would be much better. I have lived a good life, a Christian life, and though I am a Christian, I reverend all religious faiths. I have lived a good citizen for many years in this town, and I'm going to die a good citizen, but I am going to die a woman. Kameny writes to Kennedy's council that the lessons being taught by people of color are being learned elsewhere. The Negroes in the country cannot be expected indefinitely to tolerate the injustices which flow from official and private discrimination. As the years pass, resentment increases. The only cure for resentment is progress. The homosexual may picket the Department of Justice Friday, September 6, 1963. That the idea was merely brought up at a meeting by one of the members because of the publicity being given to a different upcoming march on Washington. We will look to the movement of African Americans fighting for their civil rights. We will demand change as they do. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. Bayard Rustin is a homosexual, socialist, pacifist, man of color. To many Americans, he's their nightmare. His story is long and detailed before he's even approached by Dr. King to help with the Montgomery bus boycott. He was raised by his grandmother, believing her to be his mother. She raised him as a Quaker, and she was a member of the NAACP. And she was fine with Bayard's attraction to men. He attended a historically black college, Wilberforce University, where he was expelled for organizing a strike. He went on to Harlem and became involved in defending and attempting to free the Scottsboro Boys, nine black teenagers accused of raping two white women, quite similar to the exonerated Central Park Fives case. Meanwhile, Bayard was in the chorus of a musical with Paul Robeson and sang in a band that performed in a nightclub in Greenwich Village. He began working with Socialist Party members such as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters founder A. Philip Randolph and Fellowship of Reconciliation leader A.J. Musty. The Fellowship, which was an interfaith, nonviolent peace organization, the Fellowship hired Bayard Rustin as their race relations secretary in 1941. Musty, Randolph, and Rustin met with President Roosevelt in the Oval Office to declare their intent to march on Washington if desegregation demands weren't met. Roosevelt issued an executive order 
the Fair Employment Act, and the march was called off. Rustin's activism only grows larger. He fought to protect the property of Japanese Americans while they were imprisoned in camps during World War II. Yes, putting people of color in camps is an American tradition, it seems. He refused to give up his seat on an interstate bus and was beaten and arrested. Along with other Fellowship of Reconciliation members, he was jailed for two years for being a conscientious objector, refusing to be drafted into the war. In prison, he organized protests against the segregated dining hall, and between many more arrests, Byard recorded an LP on the Fellowship Records label. I must walk my lonesome valley. I got to walk it for myself. Nobody else can walk it for me. I got to walk it for myself. I must go and stand my trial. I got to stand it for myself. Nobody else can stand it for me. I got to stand it for myself. He and another fellowship staffer organized the first Freedom Rides to test the new Supreme Court ruling that racial discrimination in interstate travel is unconstitutional. After another arrest, he served 22 days on a chain gang. Afterward, Bayard went to West Africa and India. He learned the strategies of nonviolent protest from Gandhian and Nigerian leaders. And now, he returns to the U.S., with new ideas. Pasadena, California, 1953. Two years before Rosa Parks' arrest. Bayard Rustin is arrested once again. It's a new charge for him. Vagrancy and lewd conduct. Bayard was taken out of a parked car where he was with another man. He pleads guilty to sex perversion, the charge for sodomy, He's registered as a sex offender. Sixty days of jail later, he resigns from the Fellowship of Reconciliation under pressure. Another homosexual member of the Fellowship in Berkeley is Jerry Brissett, who we met way back in the early episodes of Season 1, as he pretty much single-handedly organized the Bay Area for the Mattachine. Jerry hears word of this black social justice leader arrested on vagrancy and lewd charges. Jerry Brissett writes to the Mattachine Foundation, asking what they can do to help him. The Mattachine does nothing for Bayard Rustin. The Chicago Tribune announces... Morals charge jails booster of world peace. Mentioning that Rustin had recently spoken in Chicago at the Council of Foreign Relations Young Men's Luncheon Group, implying his homosexual intent to recruit youth. The Chicago Defender, an African-American paper that circulates nationally, reports... Bayard Rustin jailed on morals charge. Sexual deviants are often referred to as queers. Bayard joins the American Friends Service Committee to write a 71-page essay on pacifism and nonviolence. He writes this essay called Speak Truth to Power, a Quaker search for an alternative to violence. But he writes it anonymously, believing his sexuality will tarnish his reputation as the writer. This pacifist essay is hugely influential for the civil rights movement. It's now at the suggestion of A. Philip Randolph, after a very long career of protests and arrests, that Bayard begins assisting Dr. King in nonviolent protests. 
The Montgomery bus boycott is bringing the city's public transportation business to a near crumble. Byard advises Dr. King with several new tactics, including telling him to get rid of his guns. The boycott ends over a year later when the Supreme Court rules that Alabama's bus segregation laws are unconstitutional. It's just the beginning. Together, King and Rustin begin organizing the Southern Christian Leadership Conference three weeks later. During the first few years of the SCLC's founding, they worked to gain the support of black churches. These churches risk vandalism and bombings by the White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan if they associate with Dr. King's group. But many ministers come aboard. Like Rustin's own story, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's legacy is long, detailed, and deserves its own podcast. Many leaders in this organization become concerned about Bayard Rustin's arrest record as a homosexual, and, of course, his past ties to the Communist Party. His record is hardly public, just mostly known by the civil rights community. But by 1960, SCLC board member and U.S. Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr. forces Bayard to resign. He threatens to discuss Byard's morals charge in Congress, and even says he'll leak a rumor to the press that Rustin and King are having an affair if they don't stop their upcoming march at the Democratic Convention in L.A. Powell reports in a speech that Dr. King has been under undue influences ever since Byard Rustin went to Alabama to help with the bus boycott. Dr. King cancels the march. Byard Rustin resigns. He says he can't allow his connection to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to be used to confuse and becloud the basic issues. James Baldwin writes in Harper's Magazine that for this, Dr. King has lost moral credit in the eyes of the young. King writes to Representative Adam Powell. How could you say the malicious things that the press reported last week concerning two of your best friends is still a mystery to me. I have always vigorously defended you against your most severe critics, even when they were NAACP officials. I have publicly supported you in your campaign. If I am captive of Bayard Rustin, it is because he came to me so highly recommended by you. Because of my respect for you and your judgment, I accepted him as one of my assistants. In spite of all, I will hold nothing in my heart against you, and I will not go to the press to answer or condemn you. I only hope that something within will cause you to publicly correct these false charges with as much vigor as they were made. May God ever bless you in your heroic work. Sometimes.
Rustin is gone, though he advises Dr. King occasionally. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference goes on to help citizenship schools, which teach adults literacy for voter registration, banking, and driver's license tests, and they also teach civil rights activism. The SCLC joins the protests in Albany and Birmingham, although some clergy say the campaign in Alabama, which consisted of quite successful marches and sit-ins, was unwise and untimely. In April 1963, Dr. King writes from his Birmingham jail cell, Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. From the beginning, from the real beginning, slavery, the slowest advance the Negro has made has been against white indifference. They've left the Negro almost entirely alone to fight his way into the schools. Piercing the armor of apathy could bring the Negro his greatest gain. At the desegregated schools themselves, women dominated the hard core of bitterness displayed morning after morning. Some of them clutched babies in their arms and screamed epithets at U.S. Marshals escorting first-grade Negro children into the school building. It was three years ago that grade school desegregation came to the deep south. It'll give us some trouble, but it'll give them a whole lot more. All you have to do is shut that water off, and the moment a Negro... The moment a Negro child walks into the school, every decent self-respecting, loving parents should take his white child out of that parochial school. The pace of change has been slow. Six years after the Interstate Commerce Commission outlawed segregation on interstate buses and trains, it got around to establishing penalties for the practice. And nine and a half years after the monumental Supreme Court decision declared that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal, most southern public schools still have only token integration, if any. On the other side, those who shouted never, many of them members of the rural-dominated state legislature. On that November day, teenagers protesting the desegregation of two grade schools a few days before moved downtown, becoming more unruly. Fire trucks, backed up by a police line, scattered the crowd with billowing streams of water. What first had started as a lark turned into something mean and dangerous. They tore from planes at Oxford Airport. Wearing white helmets and orange vests with pockets for tear gas bombs. Some carried tear gas guns. A convoy of army trucks moved them to Old Miss. Some students began throwing things through the darkness at the marshals. An army truck was set on fire. The attack increased. Chief U.S. Marshal James McShane ordered his men to retaliate with tear gas. Violence overtakes reason. Outsiders poured in. The battle became more deadly. Well after midnight, the military forces drove the rioters off campus. The rioting swept downtown. Four troops arrived and were bombarded with flying objects along the street. Several were hit. Windshields were smashed. By early morning, the battle was over. Flames still flickered among the charred hulks of cars burned by the rioters. 
the acrid smell of tear gas hung thickly in the air. The Lyceum area was littered with rocks and broken glass and hundreds of spent tear gas canisters. One of the difficult fights, but one in which the Negro has recently scored impressive gains, is in shattering what Reverend Martin Luther King has called the appalling apathy of the good people. Birmingham helped shatter some of that apathy. Sometime or other, we are all going to have to stand and be on the receiving end of a fire hose. On television, the nation watches as police bring out dogs and unleash fire hoses on thousands of protesting schoolchildren. Roosevelt's executive order back in 1941 is not as widespread in combating segregation as Bayard Rustin would have liked, and it certainly has done nothing to stop discrimination broadly across the nation. It was really just about protecting discrimination in the country's defense industries. In May of 63, there are bombings in the Birmingham residence of Dr. King's brother and the motel where King and other activists stayed while leading the protests. Hoping to prevent more outbreaks, Attorney General Robert Kennedy contacts prominent black and gay author James Baldwin, whose recent book, The Fire Next Time, urged action to be taken against racism. Kennedy asks Baldwin to assemble a quiet, off-the-record, unpublicized get-together of prominent people of color for a discussion. They gather in a Kennedy family apartment in New York City on May 24th. Baldwin brings his brother, Lena Horne, Dr. King's advisor Clarence Jones, Lorraine Hansberry, lesbian writer of A Raisin in the Sun, freedom writer Jerome Smith, and actor Rip Torn, among a few other activists and performers. Attorney General Kennedy says the Justice Department has been supporting the civil rights movement. But Jerome Smith, the freedom writer who has been beaten and arrested in Mississippi, begins crying suddenly, saying, I've seen you guys stand around and do nothing more than take notes while we're being beaten. Kennedy and Smith argue, A.G. Kennedy is shocked when Smith says he'd never join the military. You expect us to giddily go off to fight a war that's your war, that's unjust, unfair, and so dishonorable it should shame you. I wouldn't pick up a gun to fight for this country. I'd die first. Kennedy says his family were immigrants from Ireland who were discriminated against, but they were able to overcome it. James and his brother David point out that their family has been in the country far longer, and they are not a politically successful family. Lorraine Hansberry adds, You've got a great many very, very accomplished people in this room, Mr. Attorney General, but the only man who should be listened to is that man over there. Jerome Smith. Look, if you can't understand what this young man is saying, then we are without any hope at all because you and your brother are representatives of the best that a white America can offer. And if you are insensitive to this, then there's no alternative except our going in the streets and chaos. After a few hours, the meeting ends with no successful outcome. Kennedy tells the New York Times about the discreet meeting. He's defensive. He orders FBI Director Hoover to up his surveillance of James Baldwin and tap the phone of Dr. King's advisor and attorney Clarence Jones. They still want information of a derogatory nature. Baldwin is labeled in the report as a pervert and a communist. Rip Torn is also watched. Clarence Jones sends a letter explaining his side of the meeting to the New York Times editor, and he sends a copy of it to Robert Kennedy. As militant leaders like Malcolm X rise and violence across the country increases, President Kennedy becomes concerned with the nation's image abroad. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference's involvement in the Birmingham protests certainly grabbed his attention, as they hoped. He had only been discussing civil rights from a legislative perspective. But President Kennedy decides... 
It's time to speak about it as a moral issue. It's time for him to give a speech. And then, on the news, June 11th, 1963... Governor Wallace, promising to stand up for Alabama and to preserve law and order, arrived at prepared script. Not long after, the two students were brought on campus. They remained in the car while Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach approached the door. Governor Wallace signaled them to halt. Two students who simply seek an education on this campus are presently on the campus. They have a right to be here, protected by that court order. I deem it to be my solemn obligation and duty to stand before you. The unwelcomed, unwanted, unwarranted, and force-induced intrusion upon the campus of the University of Alabama, the day of the might of the central government offers frightful example of the oppression of the rights, privileges, and sovereignty of this state by officers of the federal government. Now, therefore, I, George C. Wallace, as governor of the state of Alabama, do hereby denounce and forbid this illegal and unwarranted action by the central government. I take it from that uh, statement that uh, you are going to stand in that door and that you are not going to carry out the orders of uh, this court. Those students will remain on this campus. They will register today. They will go to school tomorrow, and they will go to school at this university. The University of Alabama has been ordered by a judge to allow two black students into the school. And when Governor George Wallace stands in the doorway to prevent the students from entering, President Kennedy calls for ABC, NBC, and CBS to clear time for him to speak at 8 p.m. tonight. Against his staff's advice, the president has a speech composed in two hours and goes live from the Oval. Now an address by the president of the United States speaking live from Washington. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students of the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal service in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores, without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. And it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. 
They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes? Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests, which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. It cannot be met by repressive police action. It cannot be left to increase demonstrations in the streets. It cannot be quieted by token moves or talk. It is a time to act in the Congress, in your state and local legislative body, and above all, in all of our daily lives. Kennedy proposes legislation to end discrimination. Dr. King is thrilled and decides the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's next action will focus pressure on Congress to pass that legislation. That night, coming home from Kennedy's speech, Mississippi NAACP activist Medgar Evans is shot in his front yard and dies soon after. The violence continues. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference readies for their next action. It's time to march on Washington. Despite discouragement from some leaders, A. Philip Randolph knows the only logical choice of leadership to organize one of the largest nonviolent protests in the nation's history is Bayard Rustin. They get to work. Director Hoover's chief aides contact the New York field office, ordering agents to... Expeditiously prepare a current investigative report. Allegations have been made concerning former communist activities of this individual, together with allegations concerning morals charges. A 1930s queer murder mystery. So sordid, it shocked even the hardened police. Asked, has my Johnny been in here? Was he caught in last night's raid? The gayest songs on wax. Homosexuals congregated in the Black Cat restaurant. All you have to do is walk around town and uh, into the bars and see the screaming memes because they are so obvious. If this attitude can be changed, then the mannerisms will no longer be of any significance. Real 1950s San Franciscans fighting out the issues on the radio. I was at something in Buffalo, New York called the Allentown Art Fair, probably in the summer of 69, I think. And these two sort of like long-haired, fabulous, interesting-looking people came up and handed us a pamphlet about Gay Liberation Front and wanted to talk with us about it. Interviews with real activists from the movement and voice actors from the podcast. A little gossip. So my, my dad's family and my mom's family grew up in the same neighborhood on the south side. So the families knew each other really well. And so I found out that... <laughs> 
my Uncle Tony and my Uncle uh, uh, Robert dated. They probably felt like the only two in the Probably. World. <laughs> Especially at the time, they probably felt like the only ones in the world. Yeah. Crossover episodes from this podcast. Dr. William Gilbert told me himself during our final session that the FBI had asked about me. I believe the university is keeping me from finding steady work and I demand to see my file. I'm sorry, Mr. Huggins. This devil life caught up with me and to prison I went. I'm one of the outcasts, as we're called here in Kentucky. We have just said that homosexuals are different. Why can't they have a different set of conventions? Do you think that there's some kind of problem the police are trying to get at, or what? I think what? I think it's more or less personal. I, I don't think it's to obtain the law or to uphold the law. I think that they're trying to break you down mentally. The homosexual is possibly, on the average, more gifted. Listen to bonus episodes right now and twice a month on my Patreon. It's $3 a month, and it includes more rewards like buttons, books, mugs, credit on episodes, and exclusive photos. Oh, and coming up, a bonus miniseries of episodes about a 1950s sex panic in one small town that turned into a vicious witch hunt. It's another true story with cruising, cover-ups, a queen, a murder, relentless illegal interrogations. It's a story that goes higher up than anyone in town knew, except a journalist who almost never made it out of town to tell the tale. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash queer serial. What is acceptable sexual behavior on the part of a homosexual? If I may break in and just say one thing. I feel that all my life I have had the feeling of being a female and trapped in the body of a male. The stunt-pulling days of government agents and security officers are over. As steam picks up for the march coming in August, South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond enters Congress livid, shouting for 45 minutes about Bayard Rustin as a communist, draft dodger, homosexual. Senator Thurmond reads Bayard's entire Pasadena arrest for lewd vagrancy into the congressional record. He even holds up the police booking slip from that day, which is difficult to find. Senator Thurmond then presents a photo given to him by the FBI of Rustin talking to Dr. King while King is in the bath. The implication here is obvious. Sunday, August 11th, just a couple days after Frank Kameny's appearance before Congress, the Washington Post reports, Organizer of District of Columbia March is devoted to nonviolence. The reporter gives Senator Thurmond's congressional rantings a positive spin. She even lists Byard's arrest record for racial justice activism. As other papers pick up the story, the information about Bayard as a homosexual becomes widely known. And because it's already so close to the day of the march, civil rights leaders must rally behind their march coordinator in support. A. Philip Randolph calls for a press conference. He says he speaks for the combined leadership in voting his complete confidence in Bayard Rustin's character. He says he's dismayed that there are men in this country who would wrap themselves in the mantle of Christian morality to persecute other men. Randolph has such an esteemed reputation that journalists don't really ask more questions about Rustin's sexuality. Randolph tells the New York Times, No force under the sun can stem and block and stop this civil rights revolution 
which is now underway. NAACP Chairman Roy Wilkins doesn't want Rustin to get any credit for the march. He says, This march is of such importance that we must not put a person of his liabilities at the head. Still, Randolph keeps Rustin as his deputy. Rustin arranges for off-duty police at the march, bus captains to direct the traffic, and he plans the speakers. He meets with the National Park Service and local police, which reserves more than half of their forces for the march. The National Guard and firefighters are put on standby. Thousands of soldiers and Marines are on call. Bayard Rustin speaks with all of these forces to be sure the protest is not violent. Jails move their inmates to make room for mass arrests. Hospitals postpone elective surgeries to prepare for injuries. 100,000 people are expected to march. August 28, 1963. 2,000 buses, dozens of trains and planes, and innumerable cars come to Washington, D.C. They march from the Washington Monument, peacefully carrying signs. The turnout is not only completely peaceful, but it's also double their expectation. More than 250,000 marchers. Frank Kameny, Jack Nichols, and five other Mattachine Society of Washington members are in the crowd. They, of course, are not carrying signs for homosexual rights because that's not what this march is about. They listen intently as speeches begin. 100 years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the leaders of this movement, including Bayard Rustin, stand under the Lincoln Memorial to begin the program. the 200,000 sang their way down Constitution Avenue here on a sunny 28th of August, demonstrating for a full and speedy program of civil rights and job opportunities. The greatest assembly for one cause this capital has ever seen. The leaders knew it might not change many votes in Congress, but they hoped to impress the fence-sitters and the nation watching it all on television. This is George Giese back in Washington as the Educational Radio Network continues its live coverage on the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Most of the activity at this point is centered on the Washington Monument grounds, where there is a stage erected, and a lot of Hollywood stars have come here to entertain what now is a crowd of about 50,000 people. Let's go now to our reporters at that area, and on the stage we have one of these entertainers. Let's listen. This is Malcolm Davis from Site 3 on the stage. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Bob Dylan being entertaining all the guests here. Bob Dylan. I now bring to you the executive director of the Committee for the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I have come here to introduce to you two of the great, great heroes of this struggle. I want to introduce to you the woman who started our modern 
struggle for freedom because she got tired of indignity and Jim Crow and sat down. And when Rosa Parks sat down, a revolution broke forth. Rosa Parks! Bayard Rustin, the 53-year-old leader we told you about, who has been called by Martin Luther King a brilliant, efficient, and dedicated organizer. Now, friends of freedom, it's a wonderful day. And let us be thankful we have reached this point, and we will go forward from now to greater things. Thank you. I take great pleasure and pride in introducing to you a person who needs no introduction, Miss Lena Horn. can be sure she means every word of it. A. Philip Randolph introduces organizers and activists. Near the very end of these speakers, Randolph gives a final credit. Another name is Bayard Rustin. Deputy director and a gifted young man he has marvelous capacity for the organization of men. He and Cleveland Robinson did the real Jimmy Higgins work in making this movement move. I wanted you to know something about these names, and then they had about two or three hundred volunteers who worked zealously and religiously, day and night, to make this movement a success. I'm happy to tell you about this. And later on, Mr. Rustin will read the demands of our movement. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. Dr. Martin Luther King, they are. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. After Dr. King gives his famous I Have a Dream speech, together, Randolph and Rustin explain the goals of this massive event with a list of demands. A philosopher of a nonviolent system of behavior in seeking to bring about social change for the advancement of justice and freedom and human dignity. I want to introduce now Brother Bayard Rustin, who will read the demands of the March on Washington movement. Everyone must listen to these demands. 
This is why we are here. And now, Bayard Rustin, Deputy Director of the March, will read the demands. Friends, at five o'clock today, the leaders whom you have heard will go to President Kennedy to carry the demands of this revolution. It is now time for you to act. I will read each demand and you will respond to it so that when Mr. Wilkins and Dr. King and the other eight leaders go, they are carrying with them the demands which you have given your approval to. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it include public accommodations, decent housing, integrated education, FEPC, and the right to vote. What do you say?
and you will say, I do pledge. The pledge. Will you stand? Standing before the Lincoln Memorial on the 28th of August, in the centennial year of emancipation, I affirm my complete personal commitment to the struggle for jobs and freedom for Americans. How do you pledge? I We have finished this great demonstration. The riots and violence the government expected and prepared for never come. It's entirely peaceful, just as planned. All those cops and soldiers lined up for nothing. After the program, the crowd disperses as many of the speakers, not including Rustin, head for the White House. Out on the empty National Mall, Bayard still feels the electricity in the air. Change is coming. Jack Nichols, back at home, also feels it. Homosexuals will have to march for their rights, too. Wasn't that a Despite the NAACP chairman's hope for Bayard Rustin not to receive any credit for the march, Life magazine has other intentions. September 6, 1963, Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph appear on the cover of Life standing at the Lincoln Memorial. They're captioned, The Leaders, Randolph and Rustin. A photo of Rustin inside that issue is captioned, Out of the Shadows. Letters from friends, activists, and former teachers come to Rustin. He's invited to speak all over the country. Dr. King begins to seek his advice regularly again. Byard will later credit Senator Thurmond outing him in Congress as the best thing he could do for him. Just like Rustin's work before Dr. King, his career in activism following the March on Washington is also long, detailed, and deserving of a TV series. His partner, Walter Nagel, will encourage him to take up gay causes in the 1980s. Byard will go on to push the NAACP to dedicate resources toward the AIDS crisis. He'll eventually testify for New York State's gay rights bill in 1986. To protect their partnership, Byard will adopt his partner, Walter, at 30 years old, as his legal son. And in 2013, President Obama will posthumously award Byard Rustin with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Byard's award will be presented to his partner, Walter. Byard Rustin's former partner in the 1940s once said, I never had any sense at all that Byard felt any shame or guilt about his homosexuality. That was rare in those days. In the 1960s, Rustin is not a gay activist. It's relatively impossible. The early Mattachine Foundation wouldn't help him, so how could he possibly join their cause? 
And James Baldwin isn't even allowed to speak at the March on Washington. And Rustin speaking is controversial. One of Martin Luther King's advisors, Stanley Levinson, who Bayard introduced to Dr. King, advises King that Rustin and Baldwin were better qualified to lead a homosexual movement than a civil rights movement. But the Mattachine is too paranoid to even let former communists in, let alone a socialist, pacifist, former communist, black, gay man. They barely even care about conservative gay women. Though Bayard isn't a gay activist yet, he's an activist who inspires the gay movement. His efforts in organizing nonviolence resistance in marches, freedom rides, sit-ins, and other civil disobediences will be replicated by homosexual activists after the March on Washington in 1963. Rustin will say, we need, in every community, a group of angelic troublemakers. Oh, I know the Lord, I know the Lord, I know the Lord laid his hands on me. Oh, I know the Lord, I know the Lord, I know the Lord laid his hands on me. Oh, I know the Lord, I know the Lord, I know the Lord laid his hands on me. Did ever you see the like before? I know the Lord laid his hands on me. King Jesus preaching to the poor. I know the Lord laid his hands on me. Oh, I know the Lord. August 30th, 1963, two days after the march. Director Hoover contacts Attorney General Kennedy. Homosexuals planning to picket the White House. Informant offered information that approximately 100 members of the New York City Mattachine Society, who will be joined by members of the Washington, D.C. chapter of the Mattachine Society, plan to picket the White House on October 25th, 1963. The sources indicated that the purpose of the demonstration is to protest the United States government's discrimination against homosexuals in federal employment. When the show returns in early 2021 with the final 13 episodes. Thank you so much to Terrence Smith, Miss Joan Jett Black herself, for guest starring and recording from quarantine as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is an honor to have him on the show. You can hear moments from Joan Jett Black's campaign for president in the credits of episode 11, or you can watch clips on my Instagram at Queer Serial. In the break between new episodes of A Queer Serial, coming back in early 2021, I'll be releasing a sort of spin-off mini-series about a 1950s sex panic in a small town. It is a vicious witch hunt. It's another true story. It's got cruising, cover-ups, a queen, a murder, countless illegal interrogations, and it is a story that went higher up in the town than anybody knew, except for one journalist who almost never made it out of town to tell the tale. You can hear that new miniseries on my bonus podcast at patreon.com slash queer serial for just $3 a month. That's coming out soon. In addition to that, there are already like 16 episodes waiting for you to listen to. And also the more subscribers I get, the more bonus content I can produce. So please subscribe. My Patreon also has fun rewards for you like buttons, a big beautiful mug, photos through the research process, transcripts of the episodes, and of course, as I've been saying, Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar. It's such a fun read. Click the link in the episode notes to see what else is there. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing her on iTunes because it helps more people find her. Thank you so much to everyone who already has. 
And if you're a teacher looking for transcripts of episodes without joining the Patreon, you can contact me at QueerSerial.com. If you want even more queer podcasts, you can check out my other, other podcast, Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling. Wherever you're listening to this, you can find it. That's a show I produce for one of Chicago's oldest gay bars, Sidetrack. It's where queer folks get up and tell stories live before the pandemic. Just search Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling or click the link in the episode notes. This season is funded in part by a grant from the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence San Francisco. Check out thesisters.org for more info. As always, thank you, sisters. For more visuals and stories that didn't make the cut, you can check out the podcast on Instagram at Queer Serial. You can see tons of photos of Bayard Rustin, among many other people and events discussed in this episode. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. News clips for this episode are courtesy of C-SPAN Video Library. March on Washington clips are courtesy of the WGBH Educational Foundation. Kennedy speech clips are courtesy of the JFK Library. You can also click the link in the episode notes to listen to Eric Marcus of Making Gay History interview Bayard Rustin's partner, Walter Nagel. Also, fun facts that I didn't get to mention in the episode, Bayard Rustin had a 10,000-page FBI file. That's crazy. Voice actors. James Baldwin was, again, played by Samuel Miles. Joanne Robinson by Demika Victorian. Chicago Tribune reporter by Jen Freitag. Chicago Defender reporter by Tandria Young. Jerome Smith by Samuel Miles. Lorraine Hansberry returns, played by my dear, lovely, brilliant cousin Zoya Barker. FBI agent by Mike Lysak. J. Edgar Hoover by John Roth. Washington Post reporter by Tina Munoz-Pandaya. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, was played by Terrence Smith, a.k.a. Joan Jet Black. Thank you so much, all of you, for being a part of the show. And why then all those boring old white straight men have all the fun? <laughs> now, if a bad actor can be elected president, why not a good drag queen? <laughs> That's why, at this time, I officially announce my candidacy for the Orifice of President of the United States. Yes, I'm throwing my wig into the ring. And I'm not taking this one off, so don't think that's going to happen. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I can't wait for you to hear the last 13. I'm Devlin Camp. I'll see you very soon. Now, early in the morning, uh, the day of the March on Washington, the National Mall was far from full, and some in the press were beginning to wonder if the event would be a failure. But the march's chief organizer... Bayer Rustin didn't panic. As the story goes, he looked down at a piece of paper, looked back up, and reassured reporters that everything was right on schedule. The only thing those reporters didn't know was that the paper he was holding was blank. Uh, he didn't know how it was going to work out, but uh, Bayer uh, had an unshakable optimism, nerves of steel, and most importantly, a faith that if the cause is just and people are organized, nothing can stand in our way. For decades, this great leader, often at Dr. King's side, was denied his rightful place in history because he was openly gay. No medal can change that, but today we honor Bayard Rustin's memory by taking our place in his march towards true equality, no matter who we are or who we love. 
Lord, I don't care where you bury my body, Lord, I don't care where you bury my body, Lord, I don't care where you bury my body, my soul is gonna live with God. Lord, I don't care where you bury my body. I don't care where you bury my body. I don't care where you bury my body. My soul is gonna live with God. Meet me, Lord, meet me. Meet me in the middle of the air. And if my face should fail me, I know you'll help me there. I don't care where you bury my body. I don't care where you bury my body. Lord, I don't care where you bury my body. My soul is gonna live with God. Lord, I don't care where you bury my body. I don't care where you bury my body. Lord, I don't care where you bury my body. My soul is gonna live with God.